Well, just a few months ago at the New York City Marathon, Jamel Melville was making good time when he suddenly collapsed just 650 feet shy of the finish line. Oh, he had hit the wall at mile 22, started to feel the cramps, the weariness, but he was determined to press on, to press through the fatigue and the discouragement, and yet, so close, his knees buckled and he collapsed. Yet the race was not over for him, for two other runners came alongside him, grabbed his arms, lifted him up, and helped him in a crippled fashion make it across the finish line. And his time was three hours and 34 minutes. It's similar to what the preacher talks about today. If you'll remember back to just a few weeks ago, Verses 1 through 3, and the image of the endurance runner, the marathoner. The preacher is saying, run the race with what? Endurance. And how do you do it? You fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We're to cast aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And the grace that saves us is the grace that will endure through us. Christ endured. Remember the hostility that was against Him so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Well, today the preacher picks up this race imagery again. And this time, it's on finishing well. The title of our sermon... The church's vigilant pursuit. The church's vigilant pursuit. And if you'll remember from a few weeks ago, I said he bookends last week with encouragement. Run the race with endurance. And then he has this this week where he checked our vision. He gave us perspective. He gave us clarity on what persecution actually is. Oh, many times it's evil from those who hate the church. Sometimes it's evil from those inside the church. But no matter what it is, God is above it all. He is both sovereign and good. And that persecution that is coming our way is in reality the Father's hand of discipline. It was a radical change of thought. In fact, I spoke with many of you and you're like, wow, that, that, just, that just changes how I'm supposed to feel when I'm undergoing persecution. Well, this week is where he picks up that bookend of encouragement and comes back to the picture of a race. What's interesting here is that we're going to see again that it is this endurance, this race, how we collectively respond that will cause our, our faith to be strengthened or cause us to drift away. And we've got lots of imperatives here, and this is, a, this is a dense text. So if you'll kind of put your thinking caps on, get your Bibles open, get your pens ready, you, you may want to jot some things down because we're going we're to move at a fast pace. There's lots of imperatives here. Much like a coach pressing his team to finish well, he, he's encouraging them, stay the course. Look at verse 12. Strengthen the hands that are weak. 
I would, I would circle strengthen. Straighten the paths for your feet. Verse 14, another imperative. Pursue peace and the sanctification. Verse 15 becomes an anchor for the rest of the text. See to it that no one comes up short. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble. Verse 16, see to it, implied, but it's anchored there, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. I mean, this coach, it's like, it's like he's on the sidelines. You're running the race with endurance. You're fixing your eyes on Christ, and he's seeing some drifters. And he's seeing some weary saints. And he's barking out at the church collectively, help that fella! He just fell down. He's weary. He's tired. He's spiritually fatigued. His knees are buckling. Help him out. Hey, church, help that other guy out. He's out of his lane. He's drifting off the track. That's the sense. This coach is barking out orders. But it's meant to be in an encouraging fashion. All of this is, is grouped under two sections. They're imperatives based on whether the person has a weary heart or has a wandering heart. A weary heart or a wandering heart. If you're taking notes, the first point is about a weary heart. Strengthen the weak and stay the course. Strengthen the weak and stay the course. The second one is about a wandering heart. Pursue the wandering and protect the flock. Pursue the wandering and protect the flock. Now what's interesting about this is that whether the person, the individual in the church body has a weary heart or a wandering heart, the cure in each case is the same. The church is to diligently And with vigilance, pursue that person. Pursue them to bring them back. To bring them back in the fold. To carry them through to the end. This is about finishing well. Let's look at the first point together. Strengthen the weak and stay the course. Verse 12, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So think about that. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. What are the first signs, even from the bleachers, that a a runner is about to cap out, maybe even collapse? Those of you who are runners know The arms fall by the side. And he starts to lose his stride. You can can see it. You don't immediately notice it because maybe he's keeping pace. He's putting one foot in front of another, but the arms fall and he starts to lose his stride. He starts to get a little wobbly. That's the picture here. And he says, church, collectively, lift up. Remember, this is not a pastoral epistle. This is a sermon to a church. So this is not like, um, Pastor, you need to uh, lift up 
this guy's drooping hands. That's how the, uh, the ESV says it. It's not to the pastor. It's not to elders. It's church. Go help that fella. He's weary. He's tired. The preacher is drawing uh, from a picture that we see in Isaiah 35. You don't need to turn there, but let me read it to you. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with an anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. We learned about Job this morning. We see a similar passage in Job 35, where Eliphaz explains how Job has indeed in the past encouraged and admonished others. Job 4.3, Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you have strengthened feeble knees. It's a picture of a saint whose knees were once straight and strong and whose strength was within him. And yet now, after a long race and after pressure from the world and family and friends, his knees are starting to buckle. Do you think this might be true for this first century church? given what they've been through? Do you think a lot of these saints in this house church, as they look around on Sunday morning, and maybe they used to be 20 or 25, but so many have forsaken the assembly together that now there's only like eight of them? And they're starting to feel like they are going crazy like we talked about last week. They start to feel alone. Frankly, they're just tired of being hated by their own family. They're tired of being mocked in the Jewish quarter. They've had their property taken from them in some cases. I'd say that their knees are about to give out. I mean, spiritual fatigue is a recipe for falling down. Amen? And everyone in here has felt it before. Maybe not to the level that they have. We haven't endured that sort of persecution. But we know what it feels like. All of us can point to a time where we start to just kind of push away from the church body. Push away from encouragement and interaction because we just, we just want the pain and the burden to stop. Right? So what is the church's responsibility when one of us falls down? Do we just keep running? Do we turn around and speak a word of encouragement? Come on, get up, you can do it. One foot in front of another. Do we turn a blind eye and a deaf ear? No. We. Say it with me. We. We. We can do better. Ready? We. Lift up drooping hands. Okay? Look, if these strangers at the New York City Marathon were willing to take an arm and do this, how much more should a family do it with brothers and sisters in Christ? Let me help you. Let me carry you. You've heard the motto, no man left behind. 
You've probably heard it as a commitment of the U.S. military. There's, there's various versions of it in the different branches of the U.S. Uh, armed forces. But it actually dates back to pre-Revolutionary War times. A man named Robert Rogers was an American colonist fighting in the French and Indian War. And he had his own militia comprised of 600 men. And they had adapted the Indian method of fighting. Raids in and out, quick attacks, sort of a blitzkrieg, a blitzkrieg type thing where they would get in and out, they would do the project, do their mission, get out. And there was one singular thing that he was noted for. Do you know what it was? It was a roll call at the end. Every man must be accounted for. That became the motto by which this militia lived. Now here's what's interesting. If you know anything about your history, you know the French and Indian War preceded the Revolutionary War by a couple decades, right? These militia men from Robert's militia ended up becoming the leaders in the Revolutionary War. And that became the warp and the woof of the U.S. military. Leave no man behind. And it stuck. It became the very foundation. If that is true in our military, how much more should it be true in the church? Leave no man behind. We'll talk about practically what that looks like, but, but do we have that mentality? Do you go to church? Or are we the church? This is why we have one service, by the way, in case you're visiting here. It's because we're so, not so large yet. That's another reason, okay? But as best as we can plan, we're never going to have two services. Why? You have two churches. If you have two churches, you either A, won't be known, or you can hide. When people get spiritually fatigued, they don't often cry for help. People don't often offer help. Both are necessary to finish the race. Well, let's look at the second imperative. Make the paths straight for your feet. Now, that's an odd statement here, but the connection comes out of Proverbs chapter 4, verses 25 through 27. Let your eyes look directly ahead, and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. And the thought is this, talking to the church. When you have people who are spiritually fatigued, spiritually burdened, who are on the verge of collapsing, the church needs to do whatever it can to make the finish easier, to make the journey to the finish line easier. Part of that is lifting people up, Part of that is moving things out of the way or having them take a more flat path. Whatever it is, we are going to do our best short of enabling sin or, or encouraging, you know, handle it on your own. We're going to help them. And this fits perfectly with what we see in the author's famous passage in Hebrews 10. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Making paths straight 
is great for dislocated joints that need to be put back into place. If you've ever dislocated your shoulder or, 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 or your knee or something like that, you know it is very painful to put back into place, and then it is very fragile. The picture here is, hey, let's not have this person climb a mountain. Let's lift up their hands, but then let's also make the path easier for them. Let's bear his burdens. All right? What does that mean practically? What does it mean to stimulate one another? It doesn't mean to just give a word of encouragement. It means to encourage them to not forsake the assembling together, be with the body when it gathers, but it might mean also picking them up and getting them here or taking them out afterwards to lunch. It's not just instructing them, hey, you need to avoid sin. It's also looking at their calendar and ordering their life so that they can avoid sin. There's a real physical and spiritual help here. It's doing whatever to take a former spiritual athlete who has been put on injured reserve and say, no, let's get you back out on the field and we will help you. It's doing life together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that book, Life Together. The body of Christ, the church, is to do life together. I'm going to make a very strong statement here. This church family should be closer to you and more important than your own personal blood family. Unless your own personal blood family is part of this church family. You see what I'm saying? That is so foreign, that is so foreign in my extended family. Oh my goodness. When we've come to a biblical principle before, it's been like, yeah, I know God says that, but that's your cousin. As though, oh, there's a little asterisk here. I didn't see it. It's at the bottom here. This does not apply if your cousin wants to do something different. Y'all know what I mean? Come on. We're going to spend eternity together. I seriously doubt that your entire extended family are Christians. We want them to be. We're going to reach out to them. But this is your spiritual family. This is what's most important. So what does it mean to strengthen the hands and the knees? It means you don't let folks quit. It means you have to sometimes carry them in order for them not to quit. We are on this narrow path together towards the celestial kingdom. And we do all that we can to help them finish. Include sometimes carrying them across the finish line. There's a, one of my favorite pastors, you've heard me speak of him before, Troy Stewart of Providence Church in uh, Spring, Texas. And I love, I love his attitude and how he positively answers someone who is either, either weak or wondering. And it's, it's a come with us. We're, come with us. The flock is going this direction. We're following Christ. Oh, but I can't. Oh, I'm tired. I'll help you, but come with us. You see what I'm saying? It's that posture of we're following Christ. It's that 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Follow me as I follow Christ. So that's, that's the, the weary and the weak. What about the wondering? Look at our second point. Pursue the wondering and protect the flock. Now there seems to be a shift here, and most commentators would say that this is where it breaks. Side note here, let me bring up one more thing. We also have to realize that if we don't help the weak, the weak will become the wandering. 
Does that make sense? Okay, so we're dealing with people according to the attitudes of their hearts, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press us. There's a lot of people, and I've been very guilty of this in the past, when I'm weak. Uh, yeah, I got it. I can handle it. You don't need to raise your hands, but I imagine there's a lot of I can handle it's in here, right? I got this. I got this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You can just pray for me. Just, just pray for me. Just pray for me. That's funny. Just. Like that's the least we can do, right? So realize that. This is not an option to help the weak because the weak will become the wondering. As we transition to the second point here, um, if the first one describes someone who is spiritually fatigued, who is, is burdened, who is tired, who is on the track, but they're about to collapse, the second group are those who are, are, are wandering and straying out of their lane and almost off the track, and some who are almost out of the stadium. And he seems to cover three different levels of wanderers. Let's look at the first one, verse 14. You might write down the uncommitted wanderer. Verse 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Note the calls to pursue, see to it. Okay? Those are vastly different than lift up and encourage and strengthen. Okay, so there's a, there's, there's a definite pursuit picture here. See to it. Ensure. It has a different flavor. This might describe the fellow who, who wants the preaching, wants the good music, loves the fellowship, but frankly doesn't want any of the shepherding and discipleship. I like what you guys do. This is great. See you next Sunday. Would you mind leaving your number so we could pursue? No. <laughs> Would you want to be part of the family and, and grow with us together? No, not, not, not interested. Or maybe they are a member, but they, they want to be... I remember I was part of this church one time that had members and associate members. Like, try to find that somewhere scripturally, okay? And associate members were those who just would come. They wanted the benefits of membership without any of the cost. But this is the person that says, hey, I want you to tell me what the Bible says. I love, Pastor, I love your deep and rich and fat and heavy sermons. Love it. Tell me what the Bible says. Uh, and then just let the Holy Spirit move. Don't ask me about it. Don't be involved in my life. Stay out of my kitchen. In fact, I'd really rather you give me a lecture than an exhortational message. Can I just tell you that is not preaching? Biblically, that is not preaching. You want to look and know what preaching is? The best example of apostolic preaching is the book of Hebrews. Chapter 13 says it's a word of exhortation. Preaching is not a word of instruction. It's a word of exhortation. And Paul defines this in Colossians 1.28. He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. You could summarize it by saying, pursue peace and the sanctification. Sanctification meaning being set apart for Christ. When you come to Christ, when you came to Christ, you were not only given eternal life, but you were marked out as a child of the King. And you've heard me say before, we're about to have a baptism. One reason we don't hold people under at baptism and send them on to glory, because it would be much greater Okay, 
is because he's left us here as ambassadors for Christ, right? Ambassadors who do what? Who just go out and proclaim the good news? No, 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 no. Who go out and make disciple-making disciples. There is no concept in the New Testament of a lone ranger Christian. There is no concept in the New Testament of a person who watches church on TV. That's why we don't do live stream here. If you're sick, you can see the video tomorrow. This is why the body of Christ, New Testament, speaks to the local church 90% of the time in the New Testament. 90% of the time when it uses the word church. We do life together. And that life together is admonishing every man, encouraging every man, presenting every man perfect in Christ. Not perfect in meaning sinless, but in maturity is what that means. And so the old adage of, what are we left here to do? Help people to know Jesus Christ and grow to be like Him. You've been left here. You're alive. We didn't hold you under a baptism. Your job is to help people know Jesus Christ and grow to be like Him. Not once a year. Not once a month. Your priority in life is to make disciples. If you're not ready to make a disciple, you need to be discipled and get ready. But that means intimately involved in people's lives, in soul care. And so what does that mean in a body of believers? That means we pursue the uncommitted all the time. I mean, just, just fair warning. If you're visiting Metro, you like what you see, we're going to do life together. We're so glad you're here. Okay? Now, I'm not going to tell you what color socks to wear. I'm not going to be legalistic. But I am going to care for your soul. Because I'm not just your preacher, I'm your pastor. And everyone else loves you as much or more than I do. So he says, hey, pursue, pursue the uncommitted. Secondly, he says, pursue the second group of wonders. Write down unforgiving wonders. Unforgiving. Verse 15. See to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many may be defiled. And the preacher's meditating on Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18. Quote, So that there will be, not be any among you, a man or a woman, or family or tribe, whose hearts turn away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of other nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. Okay, so if the first group was sort of the uncommitted, you know, uh, one, one commentator describes them as sort of the careless Christian, you know, they're just not taking it seriously. Well, it's not taking it seriously that will cause you to drift. Then there's the second group. Maybe this is a person who's been committed, but now there's a root of bitterness that has taken place in their heart. And I, and I think it helps to understand what that is. Oftentimes, wondering starts with bitterness. But if you're like me, I've never considered myself bitter, right? I'm justified. It helps to understand from biblical counseling what bitterness is. Bitterness is misplaced pain. We've all experienced. It oftentimes starts out as real pain. Someone has been adversarial towards you. Someone has done you wrong. Someone has been cutting in their remarks. 
Forget whether they intended it or not. It, it was real and it was painful. That's normal. That's natural. Okay? Misplaced pain is not dealing with it biblically. The biblical tools for dealing with pain in the body are either to A, overlook an offense, or B, pursue biblical restoration, biblical reconciliation. You know, you find out, did that, did that person mean what they said? Did they not mean what they said? Do they need to ask for repentance? But if you don't do this, and that pain that's on the surface becomes misplaced and takes root in the heart, and a bitterness starts to grow. We start to nurse a grudge of perceived injustice. Relationships are distanced in the hope of normalcy, and the hope of normalcy is eclipsed by a high, impregnable wall of emotional distrust and emotional animosity. We've all been there. You may have heard this before, that bitterness becomes the poison you drink thinking it will kill the other guy. Right? And what does the text here says? It'll, it'll spread like gangrene. It, it will destroy a body. A root of bitterness causes us to take our eyes off Christ and put them on ourselves. And as a result, when we take our eyes off Christ, we start to drift off the track. Right? And so what is the church to do? The church is to pursue with vigilance. They're to go after them. Each one looking to themselves, we're going to learn in a moment. If we don't, everyone, and we've all been guilty of this, everyone will start to justify themselves by gossiping about it in order to justify. And you know what? We can see how it spreads like gangrene because the church is sympathetic. Because we're family. If I was to go out and I'd say, hey, you know, Joe over here did me wrong. How are you going to feel? You're about to go tear Joe's head off, right? But we all become guilty of throwing biblical principles out the window because we know you. And we know Joe, right? He says, don't do it. Don't do it. Pursue the wandering and protect the flock at all costs. Let's talk about how to do it practically, okay? I look back to my own shame, and, and if I hadn't been taught this, I would have never done it, okay? If I hadn't been part of a, uh, of a healthy church plant down in Montgomery, Texas, where we had to practice it all the time, I wouldn't have known better. Number one, you might write, want to write this down. What does it look like? to actually pursue broken and drifting relationships, especially those that are caused with a root of bitterness, it starts simply with, number one, pursuit. Pursuit. Just be willing to pursue. Be willing to get beyond your own comfort and pursue. What am I asking you to pursue? What is the preacher asking you to pursue? The normal relationship you had with them before. Presume upon the normal relationship you had with them before. Take them out. Talk to them just like you used to. Spend time with them just like you used to. Kill the weirdness, right? Number two, keep short accounts. So here's what I've learned to do. I like to be direct. So it starts with pursuit. I'm presuming. I simply ask them, have I done 
have I done anything to offend you? It's a genuine posture of, I realize I'm probably obtuse and I did something. Can you tell me what it is? Have I done anything to offend you? And you know what? People will often tell you. Not always, but people will often tell you. And then I have the option to say, hey, you know what? Forgive me. I, you know what? I was acting fleshly that day. I was irritable. I was short with you. Please forgive me. I was so obtuse that day I didn't even realize it. Or let's say I didn't. Let's say it was just a bad choice of words. Would you forgive me? I didn't intend that at all. Please, next time, come ask me. I'm sure I don't deliver everything rightly. It's not a false humility. It's a, I want to be reconciled and crush this root of bitterness at all costs. Why? Because we've been reconciled to the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, who did nothing wrong. At least I deserve it most of the time, right? He didn't deserve it at all. How easy then is it for me to say, hey, let's get this right. Look, let's be honest, family, we will sin against one another. I am not perfect. And everyone's like, amen. Preach it, brother, okay? Guess what? You're not either. Not a one of us in here. If this church could see the conversations we have in our own home, they wouldn't be surprised when it spills over when we're together. And we would show each other a lot more grace. Sometimes... Reconciliation involves a call to repentance. Sometimes, as I mentioned, we have to have a Galatians 6-1 attitude. Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself first, getting the speck out of your eye before you you point out the the two-by-four in someone else's eye, right? So that you too will not be tempted. We know this. We know that sometimes we have to go to someone and we have to say, hey, you know what? In a, in a spirit of Galatians 6.1, I've noticed that you're dot, dot, dot. I love you enough that I want to call you to repentance. Unless I'm missing something, this is sin, I want to call you to repentance. I first checked out my own heart to make sure it's clean. I've repented of sin, and I go really assuming the best, but being willing to have that person push back. Did you hear what I said? I love them enough that I'm willing to have that person push back. Why? Because I know that if this sin is not checked, it will eat them alive and eventually the body. Now, we all know that Galatians 6.1. Do you know what Galatians 6.2 is? Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. I never made that connection. Going to someone who is overtaken in a trespass who has a root of bitterness, or who is falling into sin, is bearing their burden. Whether it's reconciliation with the body of Christ, whether it's lifting up the weak and the weary, it is not an option. And the key here is that we have to diligently and with great vigilance not let a root of bitterness take hold in the body, because it will grow. We cannot have a low view of sin. We cannot enable sin. We cannot wait for people to come around. We cannot justify bad behavior. We have to own our own sin and repent of it. Okay? You have to understand, if this, go back to the original text, if these sheep are going to drift back to Judaism, 
It's not going to be for lack of trying by the whole church pursuing them. Now bring it to today. If these folks who are not weary but are wondering whether they're uncommitted or whether there's a root of bitterness are going to drift to an unhealthy church with no accountability, it's not going to be for lack of pursuit. We, we pursue. Why? Because someone pursued us. Now this all sounds strange, doesn't it? So let me just kind of bring this up for air. Back in 2005, before we moved up here, we had a family pet, a retired greyhound. This was a gorgeous dog. Uh, we named it Ramses. Okay, retired racer. I don't think it won many. I don't think it won any races. To be honest with you. Okay, but it, it liked to run. And I remember we lived on a lake. I mean, like right on the water. And so I would let this dog out, and I would watch the dog to to do its business. But I could see in his eyes sometimes that old nature come around, and he'd look at me, and I'd look at him. And I'd look at him, and he'd look at me, and I'd look away, and he'd go. And I'd take off after him, and sometimes it'd take a couple hours. And I would chase this dog. Why? Because I loved him. I loved this dog. I loved him too much to let him go and catch a car, right? And sometimes it'd be a long time before I caught him. But you know what? He knew I was going to catch him. He knew I wasn't going to give up. The preacher is basically saying here, wandering sheep should have to outrun the body in order for them to get away. And, and there will be times when they do. And that's okay, we're going to pray for them. But, but it's not for lack of pursuit. We will have to answer, especially elders will have to answer one day, did you pursue that person? There's one more description. There's the unholy wonder. Now, we don't think we deal with this with that option, but I want to explain something in a moment as to why this is what's coming down the pike in many churches. Verse 16. There's the implied again, see to it. See to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Now, this is a clear admonition of loving someone enough to go through the steps of Matthew 18. When someone falls into immorality, that you go to them. You go to them one, you go to them two, you do that, okay? But what's interesting here is that Esau is the quintessential example of an immoral and godless beast for one simple reason. Do you know what it is? It's not just the sexual sin. It's not just the immorality. It's that he held his inheritance with contempt. And it was how he thought of what God gave him that ended up producing the immorality. His wondering didn't just start with, I'm going to do whatever I want to, sexually or immorally. He held the things of God in contempt. And some in this Hebrew church are holding their inheritance in contempt. They're thinking little of it. That's what contempt means. You ever talk to someone and you realize that they have contempt for you? You, you know the look. 
They just think so little of you. You just don't understand. You're just so stupid. He thought of his birthright that way. In fact, Genesis 25, 34 says he despised his birthright. God had sovereignly made him firstborn with all of the inheritance of his father Isaac, right? And he traded it all away for a bowl of chili. That's a man who spits on the things of God. Are there folks in the church who think I can have it both ways? I can have God's inheritance and I can do whatever the Hades I want. The grace of God doesn't work that way. The grace of God that saves a man is the grace of God that will change a man. And so we need to be keenly aware, helping one another, helping those who hold the word of God in, in contempt. Can I show you how it starts? Liberalism. I'm seeing it all across the country with pastor friends of mine. Guys used to have a high view of the word of God, a high view of the inerrancy and authority of scripture. And now it's like, yeah, pfft, you're overreacting about sin. Yeah, pfft, not that big of a deal. Yeah, that's not what Paul means there. And these little trimming of the sails that the authority of God's word doesn't really mean what you think it means, okay? And don't think that that liberalism will stay in the realm of philosophy. Liberalism leads to licentiousness. We deal with the wondering. The wondering ultimately is the contempt for what God has given us. Sometimes we don't recognize it until someone is living in immorality. The preacher says, pursue the wondering and make sure you protect the flock. It's what we've been left here to do. We do life together. To do neither is to love only yourself, to love only your comfort. All right, take a breath. Heavy, heavy admonition. It's a word of exhortation. Let me take just a minute. I want to do what, uh, what our guest preacher did, Josiah did a few weeks ago. I want to answer some of the questions that may have arisen as you've been through this text, because this is probably new for a lot of us. Especially since many of you are new in, in membership class. So are you saying, Pastor, that you can never leave a church? Is it like that old Tom Cruise movie, no one ever leaves the firm? Right? Come on, y'all thought of that before. Is it one of those things that, hey, it just can never happen? And if it does, you're going to hell. No, absolutely not. But there are normal and natural guided departures. Meaning, in the same way we guided you in membership, shepherds are to guide you out. Let me tell you something we don't really do here, but is actually a good practice. An old practice by older Baptists, Puritans, I believe, and some Presbyterians, are that they don't release your membership when you go someplace else until they know you are in a healthy Bible-preaching church. And, and, and the reason for that is, is the understanding that Hebrews 13, 17, we will give an account for your souls. Membership is bringing someone in. Excommunication or discipline is putting someone out. So there is, you're either in or you're out. If you're going to go someplace else, we need to make sure that someone else has you in. 
And it's just a really nice way of saying, hey, we're not going to just let you walk out here and not care for you anymore. We want to at least care for you until you arrive at a new destination. Now, that, that doesn't mean that the church has to be exactly like this, but it is at a solid Bible-preaching church where we know you're going to be cared for. That's it. And we're, we're pretty good at doing this holistically. We don't, we don't demand it. We don't hold on to someone's membership necessarily. But that's a good practice. It's a good old practice. So there are normal and natural guided departures. Uh, a great example of that is ask Aaron about his. So his pastor down at Redeemer, Pastor Brett, uh, knew that Aaron took a job up here in this area, and he was driving back into Fort Worth. He was driving too far away. And it was Brett that came to him and said, Aaron, you need to be part of a local body of believers. Call this guy. Go visit Metro Bible. Check them out. Let me know when you get settled there. He actually pushed him. That's a good, normal, natural, guided departure. Another... Uh, normal and natural time would be if you said, hey, I want to take a job, I don't know, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. We're like, great. Before you say yes, let us help you find a good, healthy church. And you either say, hey, I've already found one, check these guys out, or no, please help me. But if we find out that there's no good churches in Santa Fe, then we either need to help you start one by sending guys with you, or we need to say, not the right job to take. That's a normal, natural, guided departure. That may feel really un-American, but let me tell you what, we are not autonomous creatures. We operate underneath under-shepherds who care for your soul. That's a normal, natural, guided departure. But there are other times when, frankly, you need to leave a church without our guidance and without our approval. If I start teaching and preaching heresy up here, you need to come to me first. But if I don't change, you, you need to leave. Because your loyalty is not to me or to the elders. Your loyalty is to the Word of God. And if I depart from the Word of God, you've got to find a place that preaches the Word of God. You need to shake the dust off your feet at this place. If, also, the elders disqualify themselves and we don't do anything about it. We allow elders to disqualify themselves, live in sin. Martin's got a story about that. It happened in Peru where there's like, yeah, not that big of a deal. We'll just kind of you know, sweep it under the rug. You need to come confront us about that. Do it according to 1 Timothy 5.19. Bring two people, bring a charge, but deal with it. If you don't get satisfaction, you should leave. I'm telling you now, save this recording. Leave, okay? But short of that, we are not to leave over preferences. We're not to leave because someone upset us. We are to be reconciled as we have been reconciled. In fact, I'm going to go a step further. We are already reconciled to one another, just like we are already forgiven before God the Father. Confession of sin is just making things right. It's mending fences, we would say here in Texas. Yet with all of that said, let me make something clear here so you don't misunderstand me. If you are not under church discipline, and you want to leave over preferences. It's a free country. But we're not going to affirm you. We're not going to cuss your name. We're not going to put your name up, uh, your picture up on the wall. Okay? It's a free country. But we're also going to do our job and pursue you, and pursue you, and pursue you. And I've never been more convinced than I am this week reading this text that this is what we do. Let me make one more thing clear, which I think will help, because we've all been on, on this side of 
either being uncommitted or, or harboring resentment or reconciliation. We've all been there, okay? If you're on that end of the stick, and maybe you've just come here from another church and, and you're harboring resentment, you left wrongly, okay? You need to realize it's hard for you to think clearly. Here's the assumption, here's the lie that you need to quit believing. That somehow, that your church, and especially your elders, get really, really excited about pursuing you and getting in your kitchen. That's the craziest thought in the world. i got to tell you, in my flesh, it's the last thing I ever want to do. I don't like to pursue a wandering sheep. Why? Wandering sheep bite. Okay? Look, I'm human like everyone else. I don't like to get bit. I don't like not to be liked. I'm just confessing sin up here to you guys. It always cracks me up when someone says, well, you really like to get in my kitchen, and you really like to, you know, da-da-da-da. Trust me, I don't. I'd like to be left alone for a week or two. I'd like to have a vacation on the beach. I don't go looking for calls. I don't go looking to pursue those who are wandering and falling down. But I'm compelled to. As the guy who discipled me said, I don't do it because I must. I do it because I must. What does that mean? My affection for you, the church's affection for you, if you're wondering, is a mirror of the affection of what our Lord has for us. And when we walk in the Spirit, Christians have an agapeo kind of affection. We do what is best for another regardless of the cost. Not because we must, but because we must. We love to. Do we really believe this stuff, Metro Bible? Can I get a collective amen? If we believe this, if we do, then we will pursue.